Standby playback. And now, Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. And yes, to answer your question, I took a couple of days off over the long weekend. And that was to make sure I could get some extra time with my seven-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. And if you want to be a naysayer on that, I'd be glad to answer your questions any day you like. And in, in the meantime. Uh, I want to tell you about this. You've heard, and I'm sure you've heard, uh, people who are among the elected elites in America, the 2020 election was described as, quote, the most secure election in American history. And I told you at the time that was hogwash. I think it was, in, sa- in fact, one of the most fraudulent elections in America. And now I've got some actual data to back it up. But before I get to that, Glad to have you with me on the program. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line, as we always have, at 866-439-5277. You can send me an email instead. We try to make that email address memorable. That's talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our Twitter poll. We try to put up a... uh, uh, a representative question every single day, and we put it up on X. We used to call it Twitter. Now it's called X. Should America cut the number of government agencies in half as Argentina's new president has? I think this was great news. In fact, I love the fact that this Javier, Javier Mali, uh, or Millet, uh, had signed a decree on his first day in office to reorganize the government and cut down the number of government ministries. They call them ministries in places like that instead of departments or, or agencies to cut it from 18 to nine. He said he was going to make good on his campaign promise to cut government spending. Well, probably a good time to do it because Argentina, which is the second biggest economy in South America, is just about flat bus broke. And he say, well, America's broke, too. Oh, no, no, no. America is nowhere near where Argentina is. And by the way, Argentina used to be one of the biggest and most successful economies on planet Earth. It is not at this point. Um They are looking down the barrel. Imagine this if you were facing this kind of news. They owe a lot of money to the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. And they have a payment coming due 90 days from now. And that payment is $10.5 billion. And apparently at this point, they have absolutely no clue where that money is going to come from. So Javier Malay uh, is making a promise. He said, look, I'll cut the number of government agencies in half. Yeah, I'll tell you what, that's the kind of promise I'd love to see Donald Trump make so that when he takes office in January of 25, after the crazy election coming up in November, uh, I would love to see the number of government agencies in our federal government cut in half. I would get rid of the Department of Education. I'd get rid of the Department of Commerce. I'd get rid of much of the Energy Department. You could just start the list there and go on. In fact, we could cut down government to a reasonable size and probably get America back to spending within its means. 
but they're actually doing it in Argentina. They have perhaps uh, a, just a little bit more of an incentive given that $10.5 billion they owe and the payment coming due in 90 days. The ministries left include the Interior, Foreign Relations, International Trade, Defense Ministry, Economic Ministry, and Infrastructure Ministry, the Justice Ministry, the Security Ministry, the Health Ministry, and the Labor Ministry. How many of you would like to get rid of a few big federal governments like the National Institutes of Health? How about much of the FDA? How about much of the CDC, which have been fully weaponized? And that's before you get to agencies like the DOJ, Department of Injustice under Joe Biden. We could get rid of a lot of that tomorrow, as far as I'm concerned, maybe even later on today, if we've got time. So should America cut the number of government agencies in half as Argentina's new president has? That gets a yes vote from me. And today's question at Lars Larson Show on X, at our website at LarsLarson.com, always brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believed in, so I joined and you should too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Now let me get back to that much-vaunted, most secure election in America's history in 2020. And I've had plenty of arguments with people saying, oh, no, no, everything there was completely squared away. Well, guess what? Washington Examiner has a great study that they did. They went out and they talked to voters. And guess what? You know what they found? 20% of voters from 2020 now claim that they took advantage of election laws that were loosened up because of the coronavirus crisis, uh, so-called the pandemic, to commit fraud including filling out ballots for other people. And that's according to a brand new report that came out today. Some admitted they voted in states they don't live in. Others said they let somebody else fill out their mail-in ballots. Neither of those is allowed under the law. And I've always told you that if you want to change the laws, the election laws of a given state, do it the way the U.S. Constitution requires. You don't go to the courts. You don't go to the governor. You don't go to the secretary of state or some local judge. You go to the state legislature. Now, if they really said that the pandemic was, oh, it's such a crisis. Do you know there was something like uh, 20 different primary elections that were held in America during the pandemic that were held as in-person poll voting, not vote by mail. But then you had states that said, oh, we have to have vote by mail. They had to have it because they knew without it, Joe Biden would never sit in the Oval Office. So they decided to change things. They could have done it. They could have done it constitutionally. Their state lawmakers could have been called into special session. They could have met for a day and said, we all agree that these laws should be changed. You know why they didn't? Because they never would have got the votes from their state lawmakers. So instead... They just change the laws the way Barack Obama changes laws or claims to change laws. You have an executive of some kind, the governor or the secretary of state, simply sign their name to a piece of paper and make it so. Guess what else this this uh, study did? It showed 21% of likely voters who voted by absentee or mail-in ballot in the 2020 election said they filled out a ballot in part or in full on behalf of a friend or a family member like a spouse or a child. Only 78% said they didn't. So three quarters of the voters were the ones who didn't cheat. 21% admitted they filled out somebody else's ballot or somebody else filled out their ballot either way. 30% voted by absentee or mail-in ballot in the 2020 election, even though 
Many of the states did not allow that kind of voting, or they only allowed it when somebody actually applied for an absentee ballot. 19% of those who cast mail-in votes say a friend or family member filled out their ballot in part or in full. 17% of mail-in voters said they cast a ballot in a state where they were no longer permanent residents. And among all voters, male and in person, according to the Washington Examiner, 11% said a friend, a family member, a co-worker, or one of their friends, an acquaintance, had admitted to them that they filled out a ballot on behalf of somebody else in the 2020 election year. Now, you're going to tell me that's the most, the most valid, most secure election in America's history? I don't buy it. Coming up in a moment, i got to tell you something. Are we in danger of nuclear death and violence from Iran because of the 12th Imam prophecy. We'll talk about that with our friend Frank Gaffney from the Center for Security Policy. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show on a Tuesday. Listen in Cockney slang. Brown bread means dead. Bubble bath means you're having a laugh. But what does mean? Oh, that's right. Joe Biden. No. Back to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Answer our Twitter poll if you care to. It's on X, at Lars Larson Show. And welcome uh, our guest, Frank Gaffney, founder of the Center for Security Policy and author most recently of the number one best-selling book on Amazon in its category, The Indictment, Prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and Friends for Crimes Against America, China, and the world. Frank, good to have you back. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Lars. Would you mind, since we've been dealing so much with Iran and the consequences of Iran's craziness on the globe, not just terrorism, but threats of getting a nuclear weapon and all, would you mind telling my audience about what are known as Twelvers? What are Twelvers? Just when you thought this couldn't get worse, Lars, uh, a strong uh, belief of the people who run Iran. And that's obviously not the people of Iran. That's this, well, I call it mullahocracy. The the mullahs, these ayatollahs, these clerics who have imposed a theocratic state for over 40 years now on the people of uh, Iran. Many of them have a belief that it is their destiny to bring back on their watch, a Messiah figure that in their strain of Shia Islam is uh, called the 12th Imam. Uh, he disappeared as a, as a baby and uh, apparently has been residing, according to their belief system, if you can imagine it, in the bottom of a well in a, a holy city called Qom in Iran. Uh, and the belief is so strong that they actually paved, I think it's a four-lane highway, from the well to, uh, you know, the governing headquarters of the uh, the mullahs in 
Tehran to facilitate uh, the return of this 12th imam. So the guys who have this belief are called Twelvers, and the thing about this that is relevant to us is not just that this sounds pretty crazy, but the craziness extends to the circumstances under which they believe the 12th imam will come out of the well and usher in, through his intervention, the golden age of Islam. And that is in response to an outpouring of lamentations and pleading and uh, and suffering that sounds an awful lot like the apocalypse yep and you mentioned lars that these guys have been beavering away at getting weapons that would give them the capacity to trigger the apocalypse and if they think that the 12th imam is coming back on their watch uh, then they have a pretty powerful incentive to unleash those weapons once they have them in their hands. And it's anybody's guess as to whether they've got them now or not. I personally believe they probably do. But we've watched as these Iranians have been attacking Israel through their proxies, uh, attacking shipping through their proxies, attacking our troops through some of their proxies, uh, engaging in short and not just terrorism, but jihad on an epic scale. And the trouble is that they're doing it to advance this agenda of bringing about the end of the world and the introduction of the 12th Imam and all that by going to war with uh, not only the little Satan, as they call it, uh, Israel, but also the great Satan, which is the term they use for us, of course. And they're doing this because they believe that the 12th Imam will come back in uh, a time where there is chaos and destruction, as you said, apocalyptic events. So they actually believe that starting off a war, something that most countries, I think, try to avoid as much as they possibly can, and especially the kind of war we could have imagined between the Soviet Union and the United States back in the day, between China and the United States, said, well, uh, mutually assured destruction is not a good idea. But for them, uh, launching a chaotic war that's disastrous actually brings about the fulfillment of their faith? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and again, they're Muslims, but they have, you know, a particular strain of Islam called Shia Islam. And the Twelvers are a subset of that uh, strain. It's the minority uh, in Islam. But one of the things that they all have in common, unfortunately, and not all Muslims, but all what I call Sharia supremacist Muslims, that is to say, those who believe that um, Allah's will, their God, is that they will engage in not only this incredibly repressive um, and and really inhuman, I, I would say actually demonic um, theology, uh, it, adhering to this doctrine called Sharia, which, among other things, commands them to engage in jihad. But that they will, by so doing, um, force all Muslims and all non-Muslims to submit to them in due course, and that will be the golden age of Islam, of course, uh, brought in by their 12th imam. And how is it that people like this end up in charge? I mean, as you said, the people of Iran haven't chosen their leaders, although I guess you could lay the same complaint at our feet in a country where many of us questioned the last election, but at least we have the appearance that we're cho choosing our own leaders. But in Iran, do the majority of the people of that country believe in this 12-er uh, system of belief? 
I don't think so. Even even among the Shia faithful Muslims, I don't think all of them are Twelvers. Um, this is a particularly extreme group, and they just happen to be running the government of Iran. But, Lars, the, the bigger point here is, um, how did this come about? I think it came about in no small measure thanks to, well, Jimmy Carter, president of the United States, uh, believing that it would be a, a good thing to get rid of the Shah, yep. an ally of this country, uh, a modernizer, a man who was, I think, genuinely committed to stability and uh, pro-American policies in his country and the region, in favor of uh, a lunatic 12er. By and by the, the way, by the company. way, Frank, I mean, I, I was a kid in, well, no, what did I, I was, I was 19 years old uh, when the embassy was taken over there. But what had happened was the Shah had to leave for medical treatment. He was out of the country. Um, you know, the, the Ayatollah Khomeini, who'd, who'd uh, um, you know, been out of the country, said, we're going to take it over and we'll make the streets run red with blood. And they did. Um, they so... But but if anybody wants, <clears throat> and I see conservatives do this from time to time on social media, where they'll show a selection of photographs of what Iran and Tehran in particular looked like in the 1970s. It was a modern-looking country, and you had men and women going to college and running businesses, and, and it was very much a westernized country where people had civil rights. You know, civil rights, but the Shah was criticized because the methods he used to control dissent in his country were pretty harsh. But uh, but the minute he was gone, the mullahs came in, and anybody who disagreed with them was dead just as mo- as well. So I don't see that the you know the 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 mullahs were any great improvement over the Shah. And the downside was you went back to a Sharia law country where you can't go out and dance in public, you can't listen to music, and you know and there are all kinds of restrictions that just seem very 14th century to me. But Iran was on its way to being part of the the bigger world community, and now they look like the uh, the the element that might just start the next nuclear conflict. They might well. I, I think it's their purpose, actually, and so this this is why I think the context is so important. It's not just that they're power hungry. Yes, they are. It's not just that they want to compel everybody on Sharia to submit to them. They do. It's that they've got this uh, end state in mind that they believe is um, a matter of, um, you know, religious certitude that, that not only will this guy come back under these terrible circumstances, but they will come back, as I've said, Lars, during their time. And, and by the way, the time may be limited because um, the Grand Ayatollah of the moment, Khamenei, is uh, believed to have an advanced state of cancer. So the clock is really running, and this is what makes uh, so fraught what's happening in terms of the U.S. government's policy, which is more or less enabling uh, the uh, Ayatollahs, uh, empowering them, enriching them for sure, but I think also uh, giving them the confidence that they can act on their designs with impunity. And that is coming from Joe Biden almost exclusively. That's Frank Gaffney, the author of the best-selling book, The Indictment, and founder of the Center for Security Policy. Back in a moment. The Lars Larson Show. Call men and the people who love them. So awfully tragic 
put on a happy face. Yes, he has a face for radio. All the same, check out the Lars Rumble Daily at Lars Larson Show. Hunter got indicted the other day. Joe responded in the usual way with weak denials and outright lies. Their corruption Joe cannot disguise. You see, from a young age, little Hunter knew. He said, Dad, I'm a crook like you, Pop. I'm a big crook like you. Hunter was born with a silver spoon. Up until now, he has been immune. Nine more indictments could do him in. Or will he skate again? Hope he doesn't skate again. Broke the law and here are the facts He didn't pay his income tax Tax evasion is what he chose The money went up his nose It went straight up his nose Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. That's our great parody guy, the great Jim Gossett. And, of course, I've had some people asking, where can we get that song? I said, we'll have it posted to our website at LarsLarson.com right quick. That's the uh, job of our executive producer, and that's Donovan Sargent. Welcome back to the program. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want to talk about America's critical infrastructure. And the fact is we've had some uh, new data that's coming in the last few weeks that show that America's critical infrastructure is very much at risk of being compromised by China's cyber army. So while a lot of us have been concerned about China's growing military, about its uh, creation of islands in the South China Sea, about the fact that they're increasingly belligerent toward the United States, toward Taiwan, and of course they're playing a role in what goes on between Ukraine and Russia as well, but it's more of a wait-and-watch role. I I think they want to see whether the Biden administration has any backbone at all. It apparently does not. And and with that, they may be inclined to... uh, to go after the United States, but not necessarily the kind of war you might imagine. Maybe what they're looking for is an opportunity to seize control of Taiwan and have the United States do exactly nothing about it. So with that in mind, consider this. While both the interesting engineering, uh, and I'll cite my source, uh, points out that while both the United States and China have accused each other of conducting cyber attacks for years now, the People's Liberation Army, the PLA in China, has involved itself in a series of cyber intrusions referred to as Volt Typhoon. The Washington Post had reported earlier uh, that these attacks targeted critical American infrastructure. We talked about them on the program, including water utility systems in Hawaii, major ports on the West Coast, an oil and gas pipeline, and others. Furthermore, the country allegedly attempted to breach the operator of the Texas electric grid, which operates independently from the rest of U.S. Uh, electrical systems. Officials say the intrusions are part of a broader effort to develop ways to sow chaos or snarl logistics in the event of a U.S.-China conflict in the Pacific, particularly over the entire Pacific region and potential conflict over Taiwan. Would you put it past them? If they thought 
we can simply neutralize America as a factor. I mean, they got Joe Biden in the White House. He's bought and paid for by communist China. You've got Hunter Biden, who took tens of millions of dollars, along with the rest of the Biden family. And Joe seems to be doing the bidding of his Chinese masters. And they say that hackers affiliated with China's People's Liberation Army have burrowed into the computer systems of about two dozen critical entities over just the past year. we got the water utility in Hawaii, the major West Coast ports, at least one oil and gas pipeline that we know of, and the attempted breach of the Texas power grid. Consider what they could do with that. If they merely wanted to neutralize America's uh, response to a takeover of Taiwan, they could they could set this country on edge so easily. And of course, Joe Joe Biden has done their bidding. Consider that he has run down our strategic petroleum reserve to the point where we have a fraction in it of what we had just two years ago. And he did it not for a national emergency, but because he had a political emergency and he wanted to affect the outcome of elections. So you've got that. You've got the fact that Joe has declared his goal is to get America off of all the resources that it currently has in abundance. Coal and Joe Biden just last week uh, made a new commitment on coal, saying we will shut down all of our existing coal-fired electric plants, and we will not let one more of those power plants be built in the United States that runs on coal. They've also made a commitment not to use natural gas. We've already, for whatever reason, I've never been able to get a solid answer as to why America has not endorsed the technology that America really uh, created first, and champion, and that is nuclear power, meaning nuclear generation of electric power. It's great technology. We're not using it, and apparently we're not going to. In fact, one of the first things the Biden administration did, because I've had people say to me, but Lars, we have the technology. Uh, We still have some uranium left that we can get to, the stuff that hasn't been locked up by Joe Biden's declaration of a national monument near the Grand Canyon that locked up a huge amount of the available uranium. Uh, And and even though we had Hillary Clinton sign off on selling a huge amount of our national reserves of uranium uh, that were controlled by one company in a private sale to a Russian company uh, that Hillary Clinton made bank on. I mean, her foundation made a lot of money. Her husband got speaking gigs. So we had all those things done to weaken America. You've got the weakening of America's military, both because of the drawdown weapons and ammunition that are being sent to Ukraine to the point where they say it's going to take perhaps as long as a decade to restore the stores that we have of those weapons and ammunition. And you've got the damage that Joe Biden and his buddies have done to the Pentagon. Because America's military has become so woke that it can no longer recruit, even maintain its recruiting goals. So we've we've seen America weakened under Joe Biden. We've seen America, China become stronger. And now China is testing our defenses by going after critical American infrastructure, knowing that if you start to upset the power grid, if you start to interfere more with supply chain, If you've got fuel problems because of pipelines, that America will have its own problems and Americans will say, we don't have time to mess with China and Taiwan. Let them have it. And I think that's where we're headed.
Anyway, glad to have you with me. You want to join the best conversation and talk journalism? It's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Let me go first to Dan, who's a naysayer. Dan, you know that we love naysayers on this program. What do you and I disagree about today? Well, you opened your show. I listen to you. I work in my shop and opened your you. show with the election fraud thing, and you quoted a newspaper as your evidence. And the thing, I have a question for you. What was their sample size? You know, you quoted some stats. You said 17% this. What was their sample size? 50? 100? No, no. A million? No. When you do a national poll, it's usually, I, I can I can get you those. those. Do you believe that that's not true? I mean, that's what you know, I ask you. Is, I'm just is, saying, I, don't I, mind I, would, you... I would think, I would just let, hear me out. I would think you would know what the sample size was. No, because I believe that those results are not a surprise. Do you find them a surprise that a large well, percentage? Hold, hold on. Let me finish my question, oh, okay. Dan. Okay. okay. No, seriously, because if the, the and if you didn't hear the poll, I mean, or not poll, but the the information I cited, a huge percentage, 20 percent of voters said, look, I voted somebody else's ballot or somebody else voted my ballot. I don't find that as a giant surprise, but I'll tell you what, Dan, I'll get the sample size for you if that satisfies you. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show. Well, Oklahoma school superintendent has rejected standards established by the American Library Association that are used in other states. And I wanted to find out what's going on there. Uh, Ryan Walters, welcome back. Always appreciate you having me on, Lars. I'm glad to do it. And uh, tell me this. I'm sure there was a good reason to boot the American Library Association out of Oklahoma schools. What was it? Absolutely. So the um, head of the American Libraries Association is a self-described Marxist who has done multiple interviews uh, talking about how she can't believe that she gets to do the job that she does as a, as a open Marxist um, utilizing that platform. So we looked into it. And of course, American library association has been uh, one of the um, big uh, pushers and purveyors of the transgender ideology of critical race theory of injecting all of this nonsense into, first of all, not only the libraries, Lars, but also the curriculum, the yep. professional developments around teachers. And so, look, I mean, we told them, get out of our state. We're, we're not going to connect any of those um, educational materials to a Marxist organization. Uh, we can absolutely figure this out uh, without you guys. And then lastly, you know, this is the reality of, I think, what so many are now having to come to grips with is, look, these people don't care if your kids can read. They don't care if they can do math. What they care about is them being social justice warriors. And we're not going to put up with it here. And I think we've got to start seeing this across the country. Throw these left-wing organizations out of your state, and let's get back to the basics and talk about academic achievement. I'd agree with you. And, in fact, I want to make it clear that you're not just doing it because the head of the organization says, I'm a Marxist. You're doing it because of the practical effect it has on the ground. For example, you cite uh, the issue that the ALA, the American Library Association, issued guidance uh, on how libraries ought to conduct things that would end a Christian publishing company from hosting events at public libraries. How in the world did they do that? Because... 
I don't necessarily care as much about what people label themselves, although sometimes labels will tell you a lot about somebody. But what they do, if they say this Christian publishing company is no longer welcome to have events at the libraries, I'm going to want to know why. Right. And, and what you're seeing is they are pushing a worldview. And if you don't align with that worldview, they're boxing you out. So, so not only are they pushing their ideology, they're ensuring that anybody who wants to bring a different perspective into the library, into the curriculum, is going to be pushed out. And so what we continue to see is these efforts, and, you know, we looked at the PISA scores that were released last week. America had the greatest, oh, uh, worst decline in math in the in, in nation's history. Well, what, what do you know? We also had one of the largest declines in reading as well. And, and when you look at these things, you're going to listen. There's an intentional effort to continue to align things to an ideology, a woke ideology, and then at the same time you have other efforts that our Christians are pushing to try to help schools out and try to make a difference that they're being blocked. So not only are they undermining it, they're also pushing out folks that would actually be helpful. Well, and, and when they do it to an organization that's a Christian publishing company, I think they're running right up against the First Amendment. And the reason is that, for example, an, a, a government agency could say, we are not going to feature any photographs in any of our publications of a sexual nature. Now, they could say that. That doesn't go after somebody's faith. But if you say, we're going to keep things from this Christian organization out of our libraries because they're Christian, um, that's, that's, that actually crosses the First Amendment line, doesn't it? It's a government agency saying you could publish anything else you want. You could be a publisher of all kinds of other materials, but if you're a Christian publisher, you're not welcome. I'm not a lawyer, but, Ryan, that sounds like it crosses right into the line of the government saying we're going to exclude these people because of their faith. Am I right? Oh, you're 100% right. And, and what we've got to start doing is we've got to start challenging these folks. What we've seen is they are really emboldened by a Biden administration and by courts that have continued to rule. I mean, the one thing that's consistent about the court rulings is, guess what? If you're a Christian, you're going to go into these court cases, you're going to lose. Well, now that we've got a Trump-appointed Supreme Court, where we actually have a majority with common sense who are actually originalists, it is time to start challenging all of these leftist rulings. It's time to start challenging these anti-Christian behaviors that that left-wing judges have allowed to go on for far too long. They are emboldened. And they are going to keep doing this until we challenge it. It is absolutely time to challenge it. The Supreme Court makeup is one that is going to actually be friendly to the Constitution and those rights. Well, the other thing that, that you've cited that really bothers me about the ALA is these librarians. They seem to be very, very politically liberal. That's okay as long as they don't start pushing that into what they do with a public uh, agency like a library. Almost all the libraries in America are publicly funded. They're part of government agencies. But they're promoting drag queen events, drag-oriented reading events in schools. And, Ryan, I've never, I've never figured out how they would justify, you know, to have a reading event for kids, that's a good thing. To have it hosted by somebody who is, you know, confused about their sexuality and wants to dress oftentimes in a very provocative way uh, seems disturbing because you wonder what's going on in that person's head that, you know, that he says, I want to dress like a lady and then I want to read to small children. That that idea just on its face sounds sick and disturbing. 
Why do you want access to children? Have your drag queen event for other adults. Except I've never heard of a drag queen event aimed at adults, only at children, which seems to suggest that there's some interest in getting something across to kids that's not appropriate for them. And why the ALA would say, well, we want to promote these events. Um, would they promote any other event that, uh, say, a Christian event that said, we want kids to read and we're a Christian organization? I have a feeling the ALA would say, well, you're not welcome. But the guy in the dress is. Yeah, and, and exactly. And what we continue to see is this push towards, you know, under the guise of inclusivity, including drag queens around kids. And to your point, the question is, is it a serving one, isn't it? Why? Why in front of kids? Like, like, why on earth are you targeting these behaviors and these activities to kids? And, and you, you don't end up with a very good answer to that, do you? Because what they're trying nope. to do is indoctrinate our kids. They're trying to turn them against parents. They're trying to create this image in kids' head of sexual confusion. And they're doing it before they get old enough where they can actually critically think and, and, and be able to ask a lot of questions. No, no, no. They want to indoctrinate your kids before they ever are grounded in the, in the belief of the family, our, our culture, um, uh, our traditions. And, and, and that's actively what they're doing. So there's no good answer to that question, which is why they won't answer it. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to offer the ALA a chance to come on and respond. I doubt they'll come on, but we'll certainly make the offer. Ryan, thanks a lot. Ryan is the Oklahoma State School Superintendent. He's doing the right things in that state. You should start asking the folks in charge in your state. Are you also sponsoring or promoting these drag events? Are you excluding Christians from the mix? And if so, why? You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. the public is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday, and it's my pleasure to be with you. i got to tell you something, something that just made uh, me very, very happy today. Zelensky of Ukraine has left Capitol Hill, and he's apparently left empty-handed. And the likelihood that the Congress, heading out for its Christmas time break, is going to come up with any extra cash from Ukraine seems very, very slight at this point. And this is despite the fact that the Biden administration is actually threatening your kids, your family members. The Biden administration is threatening to send U.S. troops to protect Ukraine. And I'm going to give the details, and you can evaluate them any way you like. But I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to understand that when Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin warned the Congress that if lawmakers fail to pass more aid to Ukraine, which did not happen today, and Zelensky left empty-handed, that, quote, it is very likely to lead to U.S. troops on the ground in Europe defending NATO countries in other countries Russia may target next. And here's what he said. This is what Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, said. If Vladimir Putin takes over Ukraine, he'll get Moldova, Georgia, and maybe the Baltics. 
And that's when he begins to threaten you and your family. If Putin moves on a NATO country, and I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility, there is a fight involving U.S. troops if we don't support Ukraine's fight right now. Now, that's the threat that's being made. They are so desperate in the Biden administration to get more money from Ukraine with no end in sight. And if you say, Lars, this is something you come to recently. No, I've spent the better part of the last two years. It hasn't quite been two years since Russia went into Ukraine at what I call the invitation of Joe Biden. The same Joe Biden who showed what a weak sister America had become under his leadership. We had the Ukraine. We had the disaster in Afghanistan. We had American service members killed. We gave away billions of dollars worth of high-tech weapons to one of the biggest terrorist organizations on the planet. And Joe Biden made promises like, we will get every American out. We won't leave until all the Americans are out of Afghanistan. That didn't happen. And that lesson was not lost on the Russians, nor on the Ukrainians or the Chinese or anyone else. So what did he do? When he was asked directly in February of last year, so now not quite two years ago, in February of last year, he's asked, well, what if Russia invades Ukraine? This was before that had actually happened. He said, well, if it's a small invasion, we might have to take some actions. So he was virtually inviting the Russians to invade Ukraine. And now, now that we've had tens of billions of dollars sent to Ukraine, hundreds of billions of American dollars committed to the fight in Ukraine. And Americans, all the way along, I've been saying, where is the national security interest of the United States of America? And I can't get an answer to that. All I get is the, well, you know, if they take Ukraine, which appears to be more of a disagreement over borders between Ukraine and Russia and the leadership of Ukraine, which Russia would like to be Russia-oriented, America would like to have it Western-oriented, that seems to be the fight. But if they are now going to say to us, if you don't send more money to this corrupt country where the Biden crime family made so much money and probably is making more money or will get paid off for this in the future, if you don't send more money, we're going to spill or threaten American blood. That is absolutely out of line. In any case, glad to be with you on a Tuesday and always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. As you can tell, naysayers always go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Our X poll today used to call it the Twitter poll. Now it's X. Should America cut the number of government agencies in half as Argentina's new president has done I'd say yes to that. I think we could pare down the federal government in a heartbeat. Now, to really get to the budget problems that America has, you have to address the uh, entitlement spending, which is about two-thirds of our current federal budget. But could we make a difference by getting rid of a whole bunch of federal government that America does not need, has not needed in a long time, and today cannot afford? I would say, yes, America should cut the number of government agencies in half the way Argentina's new president has done, because his country is in gigantic financial jeopardy right now. They owe a payment of about $10.5 billion that comes due about 90 days from now. And as I understand it, Argentina has absolutely no idea where that money is going to come from. So 
They're in tough financial straits. But today's Twitter poll or X poll can be found at Lars Larson Show and also on our website at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined the group a long time ago, and you should do it now. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. couple little details that I want to clean up. Missouri's Attorney General, Andrew Bailey, has officially launched an investigation into Media Matters. That is a very left-wing organization for their alleged fraudulent solicitation of donations in the state of Missouri to target X or Twitter. Ukrainian intelligence today shows chilling images from the scene of the assassination of a so-called traitor and former minister of parliament turned into a Putin puppet. Uh, Kiva, 46, gunned down last week as he went for a walk in a supposedly safe location at a country club near Moscow, the latest of several collaborators to have been assassinated in recent months. Images from the scene show his body lying in the snow and the weapons used to liquidate him were discovered hanging on a tree nearby. Oh, and then this. Nikki Haley brought her daughter to an interview to bash Vivek Ramaswamy after he called out the Haley family for their hypocrisy. Rena Haley said it was uncalled for for Vivek to bring kids into a situation, which ironically is exactly what Nikki Haley did by bringing her daughter to an interview. Rena Haley is an adult, age 25. She uses TikTok, the very same app that her mother wants to have banned in the U.S., and that's what Vivek Ramaswamy called her out about. A shout-out to our friends in Santa Maria, California, where you can hear great talk radio all day on KSMA. That's AM 1240. And, of course, you can find my show there Monday through Friday. Glad to be with you. And if you want to join the conversation, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want you to consider what's going on right now in Tucson, Arizona. If you walk into Tucson International Airport and you don't have your government-issued picture ID, the TSA will make sure you do not get on an airplane. Period. End of story. On the other hand, if you walk into Tucson International Airport and you are an illegal alien, do you know what Joe Biden's TSA has done? They've actually created a separate speedy check-in line for illegal aliens who show up without any picture ID whatsoever. They get to go through the special screening line, and American citizens are barred from using that line. If you want an idea of what the Biden administration is doing to the United States, that's a very good picture of it. Coming up in a moment, what can we do to go after America's rising health care costs? We'll talk to a doc who does it. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Fix stupid. Stupid is forever. But you surely can vote them out. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. Always glad to take your phone calls and your emails. You know, 
I don't go to the doctor very much because I try to keep myself healthy. But when I do, the costs are absolutely stunning. And when family members have had to go to the doctor or to the hospital or anything else, we seem to have the highest health care costs in the world with some of the lowest performance out of industrial countries. So I thought we'd talk about it with our friend, Dr. Josh Umber, who is a family physician and founder of Atlas MD. Doc, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. So what do we do about this health care affordability crisis, as they're calling it? We pay the most, get the not get the least, but get less than what you'd expect for top dollar. How do we go about fixing this? Well, I mean, I think we need to look to free market solutions. Uh, the problem is we keep trying to insure everything. We don't have car insurance for gasoline or oil changes. Uh, we need to get to a spot where we don't need health insurance for family medicine, meds, labs, copays, things like that. And we do that by just making health care very affordable. And, and doctors are kind of the perfect people on the front lines to do that. Can we do that to do? Don't we have to go after Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, which to me was, I guess, if you applied it to transportation, Obamacare sounded to me like saying, well, here's what it's going to cost for transportation, because we're ordering up a first class vehicle with all the bells and whistles. And when you say, I just need something to get me to work and back, that's all I need. I'll take care of the rest. Uh, They say, oh, no, no, no. Obamacare says you've got to have everything. We've got to include everything in it. And by requiring everybody to buy everything, you're making uh, things affordable for no one. Am I wrong? No, no, you're you're spot on. It's a one-size-fits-none model. Um, It'd be like everyone driving a dump truck. Not everyone needs that. Or, you know, making construction workers drive two-seater convertibles. So, um, you know, the free market does a great job of finding, you know, 100 different phones or shoes uh, or you know, food items, and you know people understand. We say, well, healthcare is too important to leave to the market. We kind of tried that, and that hasn't worked out well. I mean, this is the result of leaving it to overregulation, and it's not that insurance is bad. It's just that it's not used for anything else in this way. Um, you know, if you go to a direct care doctor that doesn't charge insurance, they typically charge you know, either a fee for service or a membership, like Netflix or a gym. Yep. They eliminate copays. They do free follow-ups. They do free procedures. You know, most of these doctors will do things like dispense meds out of their office wholesale. So they cut out the big box retailer. And if Walmart has a four dollar a month, uh, you know, program, Direct Care is a four dollar a year program. It's just, you know, a good example is a seizure medicine that at Walgreens is a hundred eight dollars, but at my clinic it's a dollar thirty two. Like so what's the real cost of it? I mean, be, be, in other words, a dollar thirty-two. A dollar thirty-two. So you charge a dollar thirty-two, and uh, and Walgreens says, "Well, we can, so we will charge as much right. as we can." Yes, and uh, yeah, they got shareholders to be you know answer to, I guess, and you know now they own insurance companies and they're trying to you know integrate everywhere, and and all that ends up doing is raising the price everywhere. Well, is, is some uh, of that also cost shifting, where Walgreens says, "Well." We're not going to make much money from some of the government clients we have, Medicaid or Medicare, so we're going to make it up by charging everybody else through the nose. Boy, I wish that was the case. Um, it's not. You know, it's, it may be in some surgeries or hospitalizations, but at one point, state of Kansas was paying $400 a month for a medicine we could get $12 a month. Uh, it's not that the government's bad directly. They're just bad at it. It's, it's not built by uh, doctors who are doing the most cost-effective care, and if you ask 
99% of the doctors or patients or nurses how to fix health care, they'll say better insurance. And we, we sort of tried that, right? That was the Affordable Care Act experiment. If we make everybody buy everything, then we can, quote, make it affordable. Yeah, um, because, oh, because they spread the cost to everybody else. Because, Doc, I, I've had people, you know, when, when they were first in the process of passing and then when it first went into effect, I had people call me say, they're telling me it's 6000 bucks a year for, uh, for health insurance, and then I have a six or $8,000 deductible for my family. So I'm paying a lot of money. And I don't get anything until my family has six or eight thousand dollars worth of medical costs, which for the average, you know, middle class family doesn't happen very often at all. So they're buying the insurance for nothing. Um, and, and that doesn't make sense, does it? No, not at all. We, we, we used to just have uninsured. Now we have, um, uh, you know, functionally un, uninsured because you can barely afford your out of pocket expenses after you paid for your premiums. So you're getting less and paying more. And we don't need to spread out the cost. Again, the vast majority of meds are, are pennies a pill. So uh, what we have is a bloated bureaucracy of a system. We don't need to, you know, doctors filing paperwork so that you can get your strep throat fixed. You just need a, a dollar test for strep throat, if that, if you talk to your doctor, uh, you know, physical exam, et cetera, and then a dollar's worth of amoxicillin. Well, you know, you know, it's funny, Doc. Let me test this on you because I went to the doc a, a few years ago and said, I, I think I might have strep. It really hurts my, you know, swallow. And he says, you might. We'll test. I said, will, will your treatment be any different if I test positive or negative? And he said, no. And I said, why, then why test? You know, I wasn't being challenging. I just said, I'm curious. And he said, well, we test just to be sure, but the treatment's going to be the same whether you come up positive or negative, which also strikes me about COVID. For the life of me, I don't understand why people are getting tested for COVID because you say, well, are you going to act any differently if you know it, it is COVID or it's just the flu? And, and most of them say, no. I said, then, right. then what's the point? Well, in part, it's a whack-a-mole system of, you do what you get reimbursed for. And you know, the average family doc feels like, well, insurance screwed me out of this, but they do pay uh -huh. for that. And so, you know, and why do they pay for this and not that? I don't know. But also, you know, they're trying to see 40 people a day instead of, you know, a, a, a reasonable number and spending time with patients. Uh, and so, yeah, they're, they're participating in a broken system where you could say, yeah, well, like we offer the strep throat test for free, right? Um, because it's just part of the services we can absorb because it only costs a dollar. That way, yeah, if you want the test for confirmation or we can talk about it, and, you know, and, and you can text me a picture of your throat, and I can often tell you, you know, based on your symptoms and that, if we need to advance with treatment. You, you know that... Sorry. Don't, mm -hmm. so, uh, well, what really bothers me is that I was attracted to the idea of a health savings account and a catastrophic plan, kind of like my car insurance. I'm not going to file a claim unless I go out and total a car, which I've never done in my life. But you say, okay, I'm, I know I'm covered if I have a catastrophe. So if you do that medically and you say, if I have a heart attack, if I have uh, some really serious cancer, that's covered. Everything else uh, I'll cover out of my health savings account, which is my own money. And if I spend my own money, I'm going to spend it a lot more. I mean, Doc, if you and I went out for a drink, if we're drinking on your wallet, we're ordering Johnny Walker Blue. If you're wa ordering on my wallet, we're going to go probably for draft beer i mean no no offense to you doc but that's how we do it would you sure. would you object to that yeah uh, you know that's exactly the the tendency of it yeah um, uh, milton friedman talked about this the economist that you know you the least efficient way to spend money is spending other people's money on other people 
and um, and so it, it creates this overuse system. And yeah, you know, the the only problem I have with HSAs is until we rein in the cost of care, it it does come across. I think for a lot of people who have no money left to put in their HSA, is let them eat cake. Because, you know, if an MRI to a, a, an otherwise uninformed customer is $3,000, that's half their, you know, savings. But if they go cash route, it's $300. Yep. Well, now is, you know, it's the difference of being able to order, you know, 20 of those or two of those. Now that feels like you know, something that can actually protect them in the case of an emergency. Um, so if we had transparent pricing across the board, and that's something direct care doctors really focus on, uh, then patients would, would feel a whole lot more protected uh, with that HSA opportunity. I had one of those uh, scans they do of your heart to look for calcium, and, mm-hmm. and I called five hospitals. I found one that was 125 bucks, and the other ones were 600 bucks. And I said, well, I know where I'm going for that one. It ama- <laughs> I mean, it would be like finding a gas station on one side of the road that charges $20 a gallon, and on the other side of the road, there's one that charges the current price, 4 and a half bucks a gallon. You say, well, I know which one I'm going to. I'm amazed anybody buys gas at the other place. Dr. Josh, thank you very much. That's Josh Humber, who's a family physician and founder of Atlas MD. In a moment, we'll talk about Barack and Michelle Obama's new fictional film on Netflix. Yeah, they're still making money out there. You got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Senator John Kennedy gets it. Mr. President, you just got to try harder not to suck. Well said, Mr. Kennedy. We agree. This is the Lars Larson Show. As the cost of Christmas has climbed so high, even the head of the Biden crime family finds it expensive. Over a billion, three hundred million, trillion, three hundred million dollars. Merry Christmas from the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. One of the best ways that Barack Hussein Obama and his wife Michelle, who hates America, America, by the way, and I can prove that by her own words. One of the ways they have cleaned up big time after Obama left the presidency was through a Netflix deal that paid them literally tens of millions of dollars. Well, now, as of yesterday, Barack Obama is getting a bunch of backlash over a film on which he is listed as a consultant, which warns about white people. Newsweek is reporting After concluding the presidency, Obama wrote a best-selling memoir and signed that deal with Netflix to produce films and TV series. And the former president has also created Higher Ground, a production company co-led by his wife, former First Lady Michelle Obama, in which projects were set to touch on issues, what else? Race and class, democracy and civil rights. Well, he served as a consultant. This is Barack Obama on Sam, Sam Esmail's new, new film called Leave the World Behind based on a novel 
The film was released on Netflix on Friday. No, I don't have Netflix. I dumped it a long time ago for political reasons, including the Obama deal. It follows two families forced to work together during a nationwide blackout. As the, I guess we can still use the term blackout. Uh, apparently the uh, politically correct class has not gone after that. As the threat grows, this is what Newsweek says, both families must decide how best to survive the crisis, all while grappling with their places in the collapsing world. The former president and first lady signed on to produce the film as part of the deal. Obama was able to share his perspective on the events that unfolded on the scene. The scene in question shows a black couple lying in bed as the lines, uh, I'm asking you to remember if the world falls apart, trust should not be doled out easily to anyone, especially to white people. Well, libs of TikTok noted that scene and claimed that the scene was demonizing toward white people. Well, you can well imagine the response if the movie had instead had a white character uh, urging his spouse to not trust especially black people. You can imagine that there would have been an immediate reaction, but this one involves Obama, so chances are they're going to cut him more slack than he ever would deserve based on what he did to America while he was president. The other thing that caught my eye today that I wanted to bring to your attention, uh, I live in the part of the Pacific Northwest where they have what they say reintroduced wolves into uh, uh, rural areas of the state. I mean, I'm in a state where human beings occupy about 4% of the land and the other 96% is wild. And they brought wolves back. They're literally talking about bringing grizzly bears and introducing them as though they want to make every piece of public land out there to be populated by animals that, for the most part, are like land sharks. Uh, they, they, they kill big game animals. They potentially put human beings in danger. And they really don't serve much of a purpose at all. In most cases in the Northwest, they've been gone for 70 years or more, and nobody notices them except the uh, big game population that doesn't get chased down and killed by them. Well, now there's a plan in Colorado to reintroduce wolves, and people are tense about it. They say gray wolves uh, will be released in Colorado in coming weeks, marking the most ambitious wolf reintroduction effort in the U.S. in almost three decades. More releases planned for Colorado. That'll happen over a series of years for a species that historically ranged from northern Canada to the desert southwest. Well, Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana refused to share their wolves for the effort Colorado turned to another state to find the wolves. That's the state of Oregon. Ranchers in the Rocky Mountains where the releases will occur, they are anxious, and they should be. Understand that when you put these apex predators back in the woods, you're going to see a couple of things. Number one, almost no human beings are going to see the wolves. You would have to go out to the woods on a regular basis. I happen to know somebody who works for U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Wolves are not something you're going to see very often at all. And if you ever got packs big enough that people regularly saw wolves, you probably would have to worry more about the potential danger to human beings. You don't hear about a lot of uh, attacks by wolves on human beings. They typically uh, will stay away from human beings. But I'll tell you what they're going to go after. They're going to go after the big game animals. So if you like seeing deer, if you like seeing elk, you're going to see those numbers diminish, I think, because when you introduce wolves, wolves will go out and hunt those big game animals down. And consider the experience 
and I know a little bit more about this one, about mountain lions or cougar. Uh, when you introduce cougar to an area, I've talked to the biologists myself. They'll tell you that the average cougar, the average adult, is going to take down one big game animal a week, sometimes one and a half on average per week. And then you introduce thousands, and there will be thousands. Idaho thought it was going to have a few uh, breeding pairs of wolves. They now have well over a 1,000, so much so that Idaho, which introduced them long before this time, uh, Idaho says uh, that they uh, will sell you a tag to go and shoot wolves because they have too many of them. And when you have too many of them, what do they do to the big game population? They absolutely wipe it out. And who does that benefit? I remember talking to a uh, Fish and Game Commission chairwoman a few years ago, and I asked her, what's the benefit of having these wolves? And she said, well, you know, people love to see the wolves. I said, who have you talked to who's been out in the woods for more than a a few years who's even seen one of these animals? You tend not to see them. The animals you do see are deer and elk. And I know that even non, I'm a hunter, but but even non-hunters like seeing deer and elk. If you put a bunch of apex predators out in the wolves and then allow them to breed and create more wolves and more wolves, you're going to see fewer and fewer deer and elk. Mother Nature is not going to be able to keep up with having a forest that is just filled with apex predators. It doesn't make any sense, and there doesn't seem to be any benefit. Now, there was a time when wolves were hunted down by farmers and ranchers, and there was a reason they got rid of them to a large extent, uh, and they became almost non-existent in big chunks of the country. Nothing wrong with that. And if you bring them back, you're going to have problems. Oh, and by the way, I saw this piece by Newsweek about Donald Trump warning that President Joe Biden has opened up a Pandora's box and risks getting indicted himself when Donald Trump comes back to the White House. Now, you know that Donald Trump is the front runner in the GOP primary. It is virtually certain that the Republican Party will give its nomination to Donald Trump. And that'll happen in just about six months, in the summer of next year. The frontrunner made the remarks during a speech at the Young Republicans Club annual gala in New York this past Saturday night. He's opened up a Pandora's box that will never let our country be the same. I can only say to Joe, be careful what you wish for, because what you have done is a terrible thing. The former president has frequently accused the four criminal investigations into him. He says that they're just witch hunts, and I think he's right about that. He has pleaded not guilty to 91 counts in total, including 44 federal charges of being politically motivated attempts to stop him from winning the 2024 election. And I think Trump's absolutely right. And when the Biden crime family finally leaves the White House, what do you suppose is going to happen? Well, I think we're going to see. Uh, We'll see that very, very soon. Back in a moment, we're going to talk to our friend Steve Malloy about the COP28 climate conference and whether or not they actually got anything done. Oh, and it appears they've dropped their mention of eliminating fossil fuels. We'll want to ask Steve about that. That's up in in a moment on the Lars Larson Show.
Nixon was wrong about a lot of things, but he's right about this. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. What say you, Joe Biden? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. I've been really looking forward to talking to Steve Malloy. Not that I don't on a regular basis, but I've been kind of watching COP28, uh, the so-called climate conference, turn into something I never expected it to, to go to. So, Steve, welcome back to the program and thanks for taking the time. Lars, thanks for having me back. Steve's a former member of Donald Trump's EPA transition team, which I wish had transitioned the EPA out of existence, but that's just me, and founder of JunkScience.com. So my first pleasant surprise was seeing the president of, uh, of <laughs> COP28 announce last week, hey, give me a plan for getting rid of all the fossil fuels, otherwise you're just going to send us all back to live in caves, which sounded like exactly the language that somebody like me would have used to describe these these planless idiots who say we're going to give up fossil fuels, but we're not going to tell you how we're going to replace all that energy. That was great, but then to find out their final report actually tones down the end of fossil fuels message that has come out of previous conferences? Well, see, they're going to spend this large because this is actually the first report, uh, the first agreement, you know, they will have that actually uses the term fossil fuel. So that's what they're going to be proud of. Yeah, they're not going to get their phase-out language. But I want to go back to what you mentioned at first. Yeah. The president of, of COP28 being the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, it was really revealing about three weeks before the conference began, he had a, a Zoom call with some climate bedwetters, including the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, who's an ultra-climate bedwetter. And she was haranguing him about, you know, wanting a commitment to phase out fossil fuels, phase out fossil fuels. And he was just, I mean, literally begging her. I've got this uh, clip on my, on, on my Twitter feed someplace, literally begging her to be realistic. Let's, let's yeah. be real, man. Show us how it's going to be done. You know, lead the way. Now, she's from Ireland. Ireland has fewer people than Washington, D.C., where I live. Okay, fewer people. And he made a great point. Lead the way. Show us how it's done. You want to get rid of fossil fuels? You do it first. And, of course, Ireland can't do that. If Ireland got rid of fossil fuels, it would turn into a 5 million-person graveyard. And and so that is really what's going on here. This guy, you know, you may you may not like him because he's an oil company CEO, uh, but of course, you know, our entire world runs on oil. But this guy was pleading for reality. I mean, really begging her for reality, and, and it and that just bounced off her like a Super Bowl. I guess it just surprised me that they let a guy who had that sensible approach become the president of COP28. How did that come about? Well, so that's how clueless, you know, these alarmists are. I mean, they, they actually think they can co-opt big oil into and, and OPEC in, into committing economic suicide and really suicide for all of us, um, you know, by honoring him to be, you know, president of COP28. And, of course, he was going to have, you know, nothing. He was selling oil uh to other to other cop 28 attendees during the conference you know? <laughs> during the whole i mean this guy has really been kind of awesome i mean you know after he, you know he there, in that zoom call i mentioned earlier there was one point where he said look there's no science that shows that we need to phase out fossil fuels or that it's going to get us to your you know temperature target of 1.5 c and of course that made a lot of news last week and he was forced to do a hostage video where he walked it back but the guy, you know, he's, he's really been pretty good. He goes, you want to get rid of fossil fuels? You know, be realistic. Show us how. And, of course, nobody can because it's not possible. Well, and, and it, it kind of reminded me of the lyrics from the Beatles song, Revolution. 
you know, you, you say you've got a real solution. Well, you know, we'd all love to see the plan. <laughs> and and, and well, I, there are so it. few people who actually say, hey, you want to do all this? Great. How's that going to happen? Well, it just is because we said so. Seems to be the answer we get from the elites, like Kerry. Yeah. Look, we, we are 35 years into the climate hoax, and there have been 28 of these cop, cops, the conference of the parties. Um, emissions in that time have gone up 50%, <laughs> okay, yep. because a growing world needs more energy. We're going to burn more fossil fuels next year and the year after that and the year after that and, like, forever because there's right now there's no alternative technology. And the good news is that it's not hurting the environment. There's, you know, there's no evidence that emissions are driving any sort of harmful warming or anything like that. No. So, so how do we get the rest of these people to come around to this? Are they all just going with the program because to say otherwise puts you on the spotlight like it, it did with uh, – his name is Al-Jabber, isn't it? Sultan Al-Jabber. Well, it, it's a political agenda for these people. It's got nothing to do with the climate or the environment or the weather. It's, it's the left-wing political agenda. You know, agenda. Half the world is – or more, are socialists. And they want this because, you know, if you, through climate, you can control everything. You control economies. You control energy use. You control food production. You can, this is what they want. This is, it, it's a political agenda. Of course, you know, China wants this um, because it's going to cripple our economy. It's going to cripple Europe's economy. China wants to be the lone global superpower in two decades. It's going to be there because we're going to have no electricity. No, and, and, and to suggest... That, that we can get by without fossil fuels just really seems crazy, um, especially when, uh, Steve, I shared with my audience, uh, and I'm going to do more on it tonight, the, uh, the fact that Ford just came out and said, hey, you know that signature electric pickup truck? Guess what? Next, starting next year, we're making half as many as we're making this year because they ain't selling, which is a is something that complete people can completely understand. You're making yeah. something because Joe told you to make electric pickup trucks. They ain't selling. I've seen them on the lots. I've listened to some of the salespeople saying, these things are not selling. No kidding. So instead of making 3,200 of them a week, we're going to make 1,600. And I don't know how the Biden, I mean, if Joe actually takes any questions on the campaign trail, how in the world is he going to answer that? The big companies have said, this isn't going to work. We're not going to do it. Yeah, look, last month, uh, Ford lost $60,000 per EV sold. Ouch. Okay. What kind of business is that? <laughs> I mean, even the big our car companies can't afford this anymore. No, and in fact, it sounds like, if I understand the numbers right, Steve, the only reason they're, I mean, Ford lost, what, $2 billion last year, yep. and the only reason the losses were that small is because it wasn't all EVs, and the gas and diesel side was making money, while the EV side was bleeding like a stuck pig, and they're yeah. saying, and you want us to keep doing this? We can't do it. We're going to kill our company, so forget about it, Joe. Yeah, I, I, I had bought a new Ford SUV. I had to pay more for it because Ford has to subsidize the loser EVs. And that's just not a winning um, strategy. I mean, I could afford to do it, but a lot of people can't. No, and this is... I, I just, you know, the EV is this huge, it's going to be the case study of failed central planning, industrial planning. 
Well, and wait until they get into the commercial size vehicles because they keep the the experts keep saying, look, if it's going to be a, a, a long haul truck or a local delivery truck or a garbage truck or whatever, you're going to have to put about ten or twelve thousand pounds of batteries on that thing. And at that point, you diminish how much you can actually carry with it. And there's no reason to do it at all. Steve, thanks very much. That's Steve Malloy, former member of Donald Trump's EPA transition team, founder of JunkScience.com. Glad to get your emails. Talk at Lars Larson.com. Check out our Instagram feed. And of course, you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson show. The Lars Larson show. Person should ever have to worry about. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'm convinced that one of the cities in America that just does not get it has to be San Francisco. And lately, there's a brand new set of comments from one of the city supervisors. That's uh, what you'd call a city council member in any other part of America. His name is Dean Preston. This is a guy who actually blames homelessness in America's fifth biggest city, on capitalism. I want to get into the details of that in just a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to join the conversation, you're always welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Uh, if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. Uh, no exceptions to that. We've followed the naysayers go first rule for about 26 or 27 years. Um, and we take it seriously. If you really have an argument in which you believe that this guy is right, that capitalism is the problem, that capitalism causes homelessness. But again, we'll get into that in a moment. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you care to, we'd love to have you vote in our Twitter poll. We put up a brand new question of the day every day, and you'll find it two places on Twitter or X at Lars Larson Show, and on our website at LarsLarson.com. Just vote once, please. Uh, don't vote twice. That's for liberal shows. But this guy, Dean Preston, who holds the title of District 5 Supervisor, this is a guy who's a complete piece of work. He has called for defunding the police. Well, we've already seen, if you've been paying attention at all, what happens when you defund the police in cities around America. In fact, one of the first cities to actually hear that rallying cry from the mob out in the streets, defund the police. When Minneapolis tried it, they saw the result, and to some extent they uh, they decided to go the other direction. He also claims that the city's homelessness problems are the, absolutely the result of capitalism. He also says that it's counterproductive to arrest people who are openly doing illegal drugs. Now, his district happens to involve uh, or include the Tenderloin District, which is known for its open-air drug market. Almost half of the city's homeless population has lived in this guy's district as, as of yet last year. 
So Dean Preston has a huge amount of illegal drug activity, which he defends. He has a huge amount of the homeless population, about half of the population of homeless in the entire city. And what he's done is he's argued that his district in particular has been affected by homelessness because of America's economic structure. Now, I've heard arguments like this from callers before. They'll say, well, you know, capitalism's the problem. Is that how in the world is capitalism the problem? Capitalism supplies what people need and what people want. And I'm careful to divide out what you need from what you want. And many people are persuaded to buy things they don't actually need because they want them. But he says that the city's inconsistent approach to actually arresting people for using drugs and sweeping homeless encampments is completely counterproductive, that there's a better way to do it. He says this method has not made our city any safer, has actually made it less safe, and it increases overdoses. So when you go in and you do drug law enforcement and you say you can't sell these drugs, you can't buy these drugs, you can't use these drugs, his argument is that actually makes people more at risk and it actually increases the number of overdoses, which I just think is insane. But I may get a, a naysayer on that point. He's downplayed concerns from the people who live in the district who are not homeless, who are not using drugs. He says, oh, no, no, that's no big deal. And he's also said that San Francisco should continue to defund law enforcement. He got a lot of backlash because he had proposed a law that would ban security guards from drawing their weapons for property crimes at a time when retailers and residents were running from the city, fleeing the city over public safety concerns. And then here's what he said. He says that um, Elon Musk is probably the person most responsible for the destruction of San Francisco because of capitalism and because of business enterprises. And I know that there are people who hate folks in the tech sector. I don't happen to be in the tech sector, but, you know, so I really don't have a dog in the fight. But if you look at the people, whether I like their politics or not, I absolutely despise the politics of Bill Gates. But I'd be crazy if I didn't say that Bill Gates has not only built a massive technology company, he's made lots and lots of people into billionaires, into millionaires, multi-multi-millionaires, and, of course, there are all the other people who work for his business enterprises who would not have those jobs if it weren't for his capitalism. So it's one of those ideas I find just absolutely crazy. But let me go first to Jeff, who's listening, and, and see what Jeff has to say. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, thanks, Lars. Long-time listener, first-time caller. And uh, I'm actually in the construction trade, heating and air conditioning, to be exact. I have to comment, though, I think that capitalism in the form of multiple rentals, uh, aside from primary residences for people, are, are getting like out of control. And uh, there should be a limitation on, I think, that a person that has more than two or three rentals could, could be higher taxed in order to have uh, well, only a handful well, of people on, own Jeff, all Jeff, the homes. Jeff, hold on a second. If if sure. you if you say so, if, if somebody owns and I don't have I own a house that Tina and I live in, but I don't have any rentals, so I don't have a dog in the fight. Why would you put how would it benefit anybody to put a limitation on the number of rental homes that somebody could own? Well, um, I'm, I got firsthand experience that the maintenance happens to go down and the value goes or I mean, the uh, cost goes up. Uh, the value, however, remains the same. So. Uh, it's putting it's putting the cost of a regular family home 
out of out of reach from a lot of middle to maybe lower class. So, and you're blaming, you're blaming, hold on, just so I understand, you're, you're blaming. I the word blame, but let's not well, go there. Well, why not? If you say the okay, reason the cost say, of housing is. include the people? Yeah. Well, blame. Okay. Because, let's call it what it is. I mean, why sugarcoat it? If you're going to blame the people who buy housing and rent it to people, what about the people who can't own a house and they need to rent a house? Who's going to supply that if you say we're going to punish you if you supply that service to people by saying you're going to pay higher taxes because you're an evil landlord? How does that benefit anybody? Well, uh, taxes get distributed whether I like it or not, and so those taxes could be distributed in order to assist. Oh, you want you want you want the government to come in and put a gun to people's head, take their money, and give it to somebody else? Isn't that what you want? Well, maybe Lars, I don't want to get that flared up. Maybe I won't be a longtime listener of you. Well, no, I'm I'm trying to see you're you're pussyfooting around it, and what I'm saying is, you say, well, we need to go to those people who own rental housing and provide a service for people in an open marketplace other than the government's involvement in it, which tends to screw things up, and you want to take their money away and have that the government give, which is taken at the point of a gun, and give to people who haven't earned it. Can you tell me why that would work out better? Well, not a give. I'm, I'm more concerned like maybe a loan that is a, a, a controlled, not a, not a private sector a loan. loan. So you want to like make the government the biggest lender okay. of, okay, okay. Just, that's an interesting idea, but unfortunately we're up against the break. But Jeff, thanks a lot for the call. You're listening to the Lawrence Larson Show. And Joe, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. As we say, we promise that this is the best conversation in talk journalism, and you can be part of it if you choose to. Not everybody does that. An awful lot of people just listen, but that's okay. We leave the door open for anyone. And if you want to join that conversation, 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you, you can rest assured that every single day, naysayers go to the head of the line. Now, sometimes I have to explain that to people. If you disagree with my point of view on something or something I've said, I'm glad to have you call and do your best to counter my arguments. It's a real pleasure to welcome back to the program Congressman Ben Klein, who is a Republican representing Virginia's 6th Congressional District, and who has said, because there are few members of Congress who've said it as bluntly, the broken border that Joe Biden has created. Congressman, welcome back. Lars, good to be with you. Are things getting worse on the border, if that's even possible to imagine? Yes, it's a catastrophe on levels we haven't seen ever before at our border. It's a humanitarian crisis, uh, the drug crisis, the human trafficking, the sex trafficking. It's turning every one of our communities into a border community because 
these illegals when they're being flown by DHS all over the country. Um, they are putting burdens on our schools, on our hospitals, on our roads, on our uh, housing. It is it is uh, turning into a giant catastrophe on the level we have never seen. Eight million in, in uh, illegals plus gotaways. That's the population of my home state of Virginia. Uh, the entire state of Virginia uh, has has crossed the border since Biden took office. And and the place where it's most visible is places like New York and Chicago and Philly and Washington, D.C. But it doesn't mean that those pressures you just described are not happening in virtually. In fact, is there is it possible to say there's a state or a major city anywhere in America that's not getting pressured by the arrival of these millions of illegals? No, if you talk to the state troopers who patrol the interstate that's the backbone of my district in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, they will tell you about the unmarked vans that they pull over and what they find inside. Uh, they, they see the sex trafficking, the human trafficking in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia. They see in, in the school districts uh, the numbers of ESL teachers increasing, putting greater burdens on the school divisions. Uh, so it is national. Of course, Texas gets the brunt of it. I've, I've been to Texas. I've been to the border. I've been to Arizona. Yuma, where uh, 90% of our uh, winter produce is grown, is experiencing a humanitarian crisis, and it's affecting our food supply because the illegals coming across the border are camping out in the middle of acres of lettuce, for example, and they have to throw out the entire crop of lettuce, the entire crop of whatever other vegetables they're growing. And uh, so it because is, they've it got to put it bluntly because they've, they've got human waste on them. Right. right. Well, yeah, that's the law that, that our federal law says. If it's touched by uh, someone other than the farmer processing it, then it has to be thrown out. So what are, are your Democrat colleagues on Capitol Hill willing to do anything about this in a meaningful way? I mean, something that actually changes the direction that we've got right now, because you got, you know, Eric Adams, uh, mayor of New York, saying, well, you know, this is a giant problem for us. But he doesn't call out Joe Biden the guy who's making it possible because he could call Mayorkas. He could also tell Mayorkas, get the Border Patrol on this, and we're going to send the message, no, don't come into our country. We won't allow it. And as you and I are speaking right now, apparently, reportedly, there's another one of these massive uh, border pushes happening right now with thousands of people showing up at the southern border. And and last week we had, what, Tuesday of last week, 12,000 illegals in a single day. And yet your Democrat yeah. colleagues are not willing to do a damn thing about it? The cartels are making more money moving people than they are moving drugs. And that's the point at which we've gotten now. And uh, the Democrats are in their group think They protect their own. So they're not willing to throw Joe Biden under the bus or his policies under the bus or even complain about his policies uh, when but they are willing to uh, negotiate over Ukraine money. And that is uh, what we have held up uh, in exchange for the border. We haven't said we're going to fund Ukraine money, but what we've said is not a dime for Ukraine because we have a border in our country that needs addressing before we can address the borders of Ukraine. Congressman Klein is from Virginia, 6th Congressional District. But, Congressman, am I right to fear as an American that if a deal is cut, and they say, okay, we'll give you $14 billion, I think is their ask, on Border Patrol, that all they'll do is take $14 billion and let the Border Patrol become a, an even greater um, facilitator of illegal crossings than they have been already, because that's what they're that's doing. Absolutely. Just, is, that's absolutely. So we shouldn't give them a dime. 
right? We should not be engaged in just upping the money for the current broken system. If all you do is hire more judges and hire more Border Patrol agents, then all you're doing is processing illegals faster and enriching the cartels even more. So what we need to do is to change our asylum laws, our, the, the laws that enable these illegals to be released into the interior of the country. We have to uh, uh, the ban the catch and release. We have to reinstate remain in Mexico, which is, essentially says when you're uh, claiming a bogus asylum claim, uh, which, you know, when you just claim you want a better life, you want a job, that's not grounds for asylum. So you should wait in Mexico until that claim is rejected. Most of the claims are rejected. And but by the time they're rejected, they go to tell the person, no, you have to leave the country. Well, they of course, they don't leave. Then they just vanish into the interior of the country. And uh, and, and they're still educated in our schools and they're still uh, putting pressure on our, our housing markets and our and our job markets. But uh, what we need to do is to reestablish remain in Mexico. And those are the types of um, parts of the bill, H.R. 2, that we passed very early on this year and the Senate has been sitting on that we're demanding that the Senate now act on before anything else, including Ukraine money, can be considered. Is that going to get them to, do, to act, Congressman? They finally realized we were serious. Um, we're coming up on the Christmas holiday. We're going to leave on Thursday. And uh, they're apoplectic that they're not going to get their Ukraine money. They had Zelensky here today. I and saw that. he's been told. He, he went home empty handed, didn't he? Speaker. Yeah. Yeah. He, he got said stiffed. He was told by the speaker, nope, not going to get it. I'm glad to see him get stiffed. I don't want to send more money to a notoriously corrupt place where the president and his criminal family have been involved. And speaking of that, Tomorrow, there's going to be a vote on the impeachment inquiry. Your prediction on where that's going to go? You know, Republicans are united because of the stonewalling of the Biden administration. Uh, there were some who were concerned that the facts might not be weighty enough, even huh. though Joe Biden has been proven to have received a quarter of a million dollars from his son and his brother's uh, multi, uh, uh, multiple businesses, but also uh, money from Chinese affiliates of the Chinese government. Uh, $20,000 for the big guy. But uh, even beyond that, uh, this is just about compliance with subpoenas. At this point, we have been engaged in an impeachment inquiry, but the Biden administration has said no dice. You didn't vote on it, so we're not going to follow your uh, orders. Well, the courts are going to look to see whether there was a vote. When we take them to court, the the judge is going to say, was there a House vote? And now we're going to be able to say, yes, there was, judge give us the documents, and the, and the judge will order the administration to hand over Joe Biden's bank records and other documents. Congressman, it concerned me when Speaker Mike Johnson said, well, we don't have enough yet, and that was a couple of weeks ago. But you don't have enough. You've got millions of dollars flowing, $24 million to the Biden crime family. Uh, you know, as you said, at least a quarter million to Joe personally, millions to his son who didn't pay taxes on it, uh, and, and all of this. And that's not enough to impeach a president for high crimes and misdemeanors? Hey, I, I think uh, you right before high crimes and misdemeanors in the Constitution, it says bribery. Um, I think that's the uh, actual charge that you need to look at for this president. And we're going to follow the facts where they lead on judiciary. Uh, and I stand ready, as does Chairman Jim Jordan and the rest of us, uh, Chip Roy and, and Thomas Massey and all the rest of us on judiciary to consider those facts. But we think they are weighty at this point. Um, and we look forward to getting the rest of the documents so that uh, this can draw a 
direct line between the Chinese government uh, co- companies affiliated with the Chinese government and Joe Biden's pocket. Absolutely right. Congressman Ben Klein from Virginia's 6th Congressional District. Congressman, thank you. Back in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails and naysayers. Go to the head of the line on the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. may talk about serious issues, but even Lars has a sense of humor. I have a joke for you. The government in this town is excellent and uses your tax dollars efficiently. <laughs> this is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can always vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that online at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter, if you like it better that way, or on our website at LarsLarson.com. Now, I'm convinced that Sarah Bedford, uh, who's the political investigative reporter for the Washington Examiner, is not writing on the side for the Babylon Bee. But Sarah, tell me, it's they're really the Democrats are really seriously going to help out Joe Biden's failing reelection campaign by bringing in Hillary Clinton? Right. It's hard to see how that is a good idea when Hillary Clinton is at this moment the only person in the world who's ever lost an election to Joe Biden, to Donald Trump and uh, has really succeeded or did succeed in 2016 in alienating quite a few uh, swing voters handing Donald Trump the presidency. So why she would be the right person to help revive Joe Biden's efforts to defeat Donald Trump doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. No, and in fact, when you mention, or I think it was NBC News that said that she held a fundraiser at her home in Georgetown. She's got a lot of friends. She invites them to come to her house. That's, that's I guess, for Democrats, a cool thing. I, I'm not sure I'd want to take a, an invitation to her house. Too many of her close uh, friends and, and uh, compatriots end up dead. But uh, But she raises a million bucks. But she was never any good on the campaign trail, was she? That's never been her strength, certainly. And I think what's so interesting is that, I mean, obviously, tapping into her very large donor network makes sense tactically from the Biden campaign's perspective. But it appears that the role they want her to play goes beyond just providing some of that structural support behind the scenes and extends to public appearances and public advocacy on behalf of Joe Biden. And that really isn't her strength. However, she is at this current moment, at this point in Joe Biden's career, more articulate than Joe Biden, better (laughs) able to sell some of his policies and has a lot more credibility on foreign policy than Joe Biden right now, who has overseen a series of international disasters as president Hillary Clinton, for what it's worth, is well regarded for her foreign policy chops, having been Secretary of State. So perhaps this is to shore up some of the criticism that uh, that sh- that he has faced for his handling of of Ukraine and Israel. 
You know, even that one, Sarah, I want to I've had people call uh, back when she was running against Trump. And I said, OK, tell me what she did that was so great. And they said, well, she was first lady. I said, OK, you know, you, you can do that. Anybody who can sleep with Bill Clinton can be first lady. I guess that would include a lot of women, uh, including some who were raped or at least one who was raped. But when they said she was great at foreign policy, I said, what did she do? And uh, I frequently got people saying, well, she she did two million air miles flying around on one of the nicest jets in the world. It's not Air Force One, but it's close. And I said, but other than that, what did she accomplish? And they usually draw a blank at that point when people give Hillary Clinton credit for her foreign policy chops. I always want to say, what did she accomplish? I mean, other than a lot of donations to the Clinton Foundation, other than a lot of speaking gigs for her, her uh, family, in particular her husband, what did, she, what did she do to change, you know, to move the needle, to, to actually make anything happen? Can you think of anything that she got done as Secretary of State other than, you know, the personal stuff for her and her family uh, that, that actually meant anything? Well... From Biden's perspective, maybe it's what she didn't do as Secretary of State that is more important, and that's that she didn't get involved or preside over a bunch of chaos and, again, a lot of disasters. (laughs) With the exception of Benghazi, which you could make the argument that that was more President Obama's fault than her fault as Secretary of State, uh, things were at least relatively steady. There wasn't uh, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine on her watch. There wasn't, you know, this this disastrous war in the Middle East and an emboldened Iran. And there, these things just weren't happening under her watch. So she could perhaps provide that steady hand on the wheel that Joe Biden was supposed to be when he ran in 2020 and he sold himself as, but that, that has never really materialized during his presidency. By the way, Sarah, I think you've got, you've redefined the, the notion of damning through faint praise when you say she's more articulate than Joe Biden. I, I would, I would, I would probably uh, turn the microphone off and retire if somebody <laughs> ever described me as more articulate than Joe Biden, because that is, that's sad. I mean, it is less harsh than saying she is more frequently able to construct sentences than Joe Biden. But that is sort of the the point. And I think that she can be in a lot of ways an an effective surrogate on that. She had an interview, for example, on The View a few weeks ago that went viral uh, that was actually a very forceful defense of the Biden administration's policy. And she really kind of schooled the progressive panelists on The View who were sort of asking about, well, what about, you know, Israel's war crimes and the atrocities? And she was really successfully able to shut that down and make a case for why the progressives are simply wrong about uh, calling Israel the aggressor here. And that is maybe necessary for Biden to bring in when he is facing something of a progressive revolt with young voters and very liberal voters turning on him for the fact that he has stood with Israel. I don't know, I, because because when I see the comment that said, if you're picking up the bat phone and calling Hillary Clinton uh, to come help you out, then you know you're in deep, deep trouble. But uh, is that the plan to, as you understand it, for her to be out on the campaign trail and giving speeches on Joe Biden's behalf? Well, the reports suggest that she is going to be increasingly more visible starting in January and that seems to be what they're positioning her for, the Democrats. She has been emerging from her happy retirement to do more public appearances, more interviews, write more op-eds. She 
she can be out there doing her own events across the country, draw her own crowds, however, whatever size they are in relation to Donald Trump. And we saw that in 2016, but she'll still be a draw for a Democratic audience, and she can still be out there promoting Biden's message in ways that he is is less and less successful at doing himself. Yeah, Joe didn't exactly draw crowds during the campaign, now, did he? Well, he ran a basic campaign in 2020 because of COVID and because of his age and for a variety of factors. It will be a lot more difficult for him to run another basement campaign. But also, you know, I mean, by by his own AIDS admission in, in various media reports, he has slowed down a bit. And his schedule does have to reflect the fact that he is an 80-year-old man and can't campaign uh, like he used to when he was younger. So it would be valuable from Biden's perspective to have people out there on the campaign trail who can show up in the states that he just simply can't. I, I guess I just wonder when people tell me she's very popular with women, I just wonder kind of, what kind of woman is this, you know, who, who says, I admire Hillary Clinton because she's married to an unindicted rapist, uh, a molester of, of women, uh, a, a man who had no respect or regard, it appears, based on his personal behavior toward Kathleen Willey or Juanita, uh, Juanita Broderick or others. And, and I also wonder whether it will remind a number of people, you ran a fake uh, Russia collusion hoax against Trump. And right after you, as Secretary of State, had said, we need to have a reset with Russia and didn't exactly handle that well. Sarah, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. That's Sarah Bedford, political and investigative reporter for The Washington Examiner. And it appears that Hillary Clinton may have been called in to help rescue Joe Biden from his own reelection campaign. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. wonder what a vegan actually is? They say cows are bad for the environment because all they do is eat plants and fart, just like vegans. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your calls. I got to tell you about this. The Joe Biden administration is trying to turn out the lights, literally and figuratively, across America. And I'm going to give you two specific things that Biden has done in the last week or so. They were announcements made at what's known as COP28, the conference in Dubai, you know, where all the elites fly in on their private jets and then lecture the rest of the world about how we can't use fossil fuels, we can't burn coal, can't burn natural gas, can't do any of that. But I want to give you the specifics so you understand that when I say Joe Biden plans to turn out the lights on the United States, I don't mean that as any kind of exaggeration. I'll give you the details in a moment. First, welcome to the program. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be one of our beloved naysayers, you know, somebody who calls in and says, no, it's a good idea to turn out all the lights in America. We're better off living out without energy. We're better off 
consigning our future to our energy future, at least to communist China, because Joe and his crime family made so much money from the chai comms that Joe has to pay that off somehow. But this is crazy. 866-439-5277. Naysayers always go first. If you want to send me an email, that's easy. Talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, we now call it the X poll. You can find it at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter if you prefer. You can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. So our friend, the economist Steve Moore, writing on the New York Post editorial page, He made the point that last week uh, I told you a few things about the COP28 conference in Dubai. Most notable was that the current president of the organization, COP28, um, is from uh, Emirates. And he's actually the head of their their oil industry. And he had said, hey, show me the plan. Kind of like the Beatles did in the song Revolution. He said, you want to get rid of all this fossil stuff, not burn natural gas, not burn coal, not burn oil, not diesel oil, not gasoline, any of that. Show me the plan. The Biden administration said, and they did it over a weekend, they are committed to phasing out coal-fired electric plants nationwide and that not a single new coal plant will be built in America. Now, what Steve points out, and he's right, uh, I've said for years that the Chai comes uh, because they understand where energy comes from and that to have a modern industrial uh, society like they are developing, like we already have, um, that you have to have electricity. And you might wonder, well, don't they use their windmills and don't they use their solar panels? Oh, they put up a certain number of wind farms. They put up a certain number of, of uh, solar panels as well. I mean, after all, if they're made in China, you'd expect China to be one of the biggest users of solar panels. No, no, they don't want to use them. They understand you can't begin to generate the amount of power that a country like China needs from solar panels and windmills, even though they make most of them. No, they want to sell that junk to us. What they're building right now is they are starting roughly one new coal-fired electric plant a week. In some weeks, they start two, construction of two of them every single week. They have been for years. They plan to continue for years. So if you ask, well, who makes these solar panels and windmills? The Chinese. What are they using for energy? Coal. What is America promising under Joe Biden? He is doing this unilaterally, signing a proclamation that says we won't allow a single additional coal plant to be built. We will phase out the ones we're already using. And at the same time, it goes without saying that the president is committing that where America is sitting on enough coal to be able to supply our needs for about the next couple of hundred years. I'm not exaggerating. That's the amount of coal deposits that we know we have and coal that we know we can get to. They don't want it sold to foreign countries. They don't want Americans to use it. They're simply going to say, we're going to sit on all that fuel that God blessed this country with, and we're going to use the Chinese communist windmills and solar panels that won't do the trick. But the second thing that happened, Vice President Kamala Harris, we sometimes call her Kamala Hamas these days because of her politics, she said, we will have rules to sharply reduce methane. Well, you say methane. I don't use any methane. Well, if you have any kind of natural gas in your home, you use methane, except you don't call it methane. You call it natural gas. The Biden administration calls methane or natural gas a super pollutant because they say it's many times more potent than carbon dioxide. 
That's natural gas. So you get methane as a byproduct from burning natural gas. If you eliminate that, the one thing that we could use to back up wind and solar, because wind and solar don't work without backup power, even if you truly believe in wind and solar, I don't believe it can be the main energy source of this country. The numbers don't pencil out. But even if you believe that, and somebody says to you, but Lars, the solar panels only generate power an average of eight hours every day. That's when the sun is shining. A little longer in the summertime, a little shorter in the wintertime. But that's what you get, eight hours of power a day. Even if you could work out the problem of storing it, you can't generate enough. So what are you going to use as your backup? The backup needs to be natural gas or nuclear, which the Greens are equally against. Well, what they're going to do, they're going to eliminate coal. They're going to eliminate the current coal-fired plants. They're not going to build any new ones or allow any new ones to be built. And they want to eliminate natural gas as a backup source of power for America. So what are we going to get? Rolling blackouts and brownouts around the country. California has already had a taste of this. Other parts of the grid. And I know that when you listen to your local energy gurus, and you say, what happens when we run short of power or a plant goes down for maintenance or, or, or some kind of repair? You say, well, we'll just buy power from somewhere else. But that's the plan of every other state in America. They've said, well, we'll just buy from Wyoming. Or we'll buy from uh, Texas. We'll buy from Oklahoma. The problem is when everybody starts running short, then all of that power that's currently available to buy because it's excess in one state or another, depending on the time of year, the temperature, and a bunch of other factors, it won't be there anymore. So when you find that you're in the middle of the winter and the lights go out and you say, but they told me to go all electric. They told me to get rid of my natural gas furnace and put in a heat pump instead. And uh, the power goes out. And all of a sudden, you're sitting there in the dark, in the cold, and you say, what am I supposed to do now? There's nothing you can do because your energy masters, including Joe Biden, have said, don't do this. As much as 60 percent of America's current electric power generation is going to go away if they do what Joe Biden and Kamala Hamas just promised to do. 60 percent. Think of it like your paycheck. If energy was like your paycheck, if tomorrow your boss said, I'm going to have to cut your paycheck by 60%, what would you do instead? That's where we're going to be with regard to power. It is a disaster. Joe Biden, while his lights are still on, sort of, is going to try to turn the lights out for the rest of the country. The Lars Larson Larson Show. Show. Looking for a new way to 